Well, again, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Waterfront Church. Uh, I tell you what, in the age of COVID, there are several things uh, through these uh, through these uh, last uh, eighteen months that I thought we would never do that uh, that we always end up kind of uh, uh, trying out, and uh, um, it reminds me of one of the slogans that we've had around here: "We are married to the message." not the methods. Uh, the idea is, again, God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, but we remember uh, that uh, the way that we administer God's grace uh, in the world around us is something that is always changing. His word is built to stand the test of time and navigate whatever waters uh, there are that come in front of us. And so uh, today is one of those days. Thank you uh, for participating in this uh, in person or online uh, via our video feed. And uh, um, i my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak to you powerfully today, uh, even though it is through this video. If you got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 1, continuing our study uh, of Paul and his second missionary journey. And uh, now we've kicked him out of Athens, and we've moved him on uh, to a place called Corinth. Um, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever had to start over in a new place before? You ever had to start over in a new place before? There are many, many of you that have moved here to Washington, D.C. from somewhere else, and you know very, very well uh, that feeling of starting over. It says in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, uh, the whole passage starts off by saying, after this, talking about after Athens, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Our story today begins with Paul being a new person in a new town, having to meet new friends, and in this case, hoping that he can start a new church uh, and begin a new endeavor. Some of you uh, have remembered those days when you moved from elementary school uh, to high school, or moved from elementary school to middle school, or you moved from middle school to high school. Some of you remember that time you moved off to college. Um, if you ever moved in the middle of a, uh, a year when there wasn't transition happening all around, you. Um, sometimes those can be the absolute hardest. One of the most difficult days for me um, happened in the middle of my eighth grade year, uh, which in Lubbock, Texas, seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade used to be middle school for us. And uh, I'll never forget um, my eighth grade year, my parents moved to a different school district. And uh, when they made the move, uh, I all of a sudden was at a school that was the arch rival of the school that I had been attending just previously to that. And I'll never forget, I go in that first day and nobody wanted to talk to me. I don't think it was because they necessarily hated me. I just think it was, I was new. Everybody had already made their new friends. And uh, I remember specifically at lunchtime, I ran uh, to the lunchroom, wanted to find a new place to sit, but everybody else had already had gotten their spots for the year. They knew where they were going to sit. And so there was a big open table uh, at the middle of the lunchroom where nobody was sitting. And I remember I sat down at that table hoping that somebody would come in and kind of sit near me. And I remember no one did. And um, that moment of just feeling so alone, I felt so overwhelmed, I actually got up and ran to the hallway where there was this vending machine, and there was a vending machine in kind of a, a space and then an edge of the wall. And I remember I stuck myself in between the vending machine and that spot in the wall, and I remember I turned my face so that it would be facing the wall, and I pretended to sleep, but I was actually just there crying right up against the wall. Isn't that a sad story? Um, I remember in that whole experience, 
just feeling so alone. And praise God, um, he provided for me, provided new friendships for me so that I didn't have to feel alone any longer. But that original day, that first day, is so burned in my memory. And for some of you, you've had that same experience. You've started a new school setting. You've started a new job setting. You've started a new city. Some of you are even sitting here this morning and you've come to a new church where you're trying to plug in, find your spot, find connection. For some of you, you're in a new living situation. You're plugging in with new roommates. And I'm telling you, you've got both the baggage and the beauty of your past. And you're coming into a new situation. And I'm telling you, you're trying to just find your place. Well, that's what happens for the Apostle Paul in this passage as well. He's had great success planting churches. He has so many friends that he's made. But God has led him here to Corinth. And he's got to start over once again. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. No one is free from the calling to start over. No one is free from the calling to start over. This is a concept that every single one of us will have to navigate at one point or another in our lives. At some point, God is going to call you to transition from one phase of life to another, or truly for you believers in Jesus Christ, from one phase of ministry to another, where it was one way before, and God is calling you to a new time, a new era, when he will do something new. There are some of you today that this is very, very applicable for, and I want to encourage you. Let's take Take notes from what Paul does for our situations when we consider how he gets started uh, in a new direction as well. Um, I've got that sad story from middle school. It paved the way for something really cool that would happen a couple of years later. Um, my dad worked as a traveling evangelist, preached all over the country. And uh, the best summer of my life, my dad actually invited me to go with him to preach. It was seven youth camps in a row that dad went to preach. And so he didn't have me preach. What he had me do was kind of tag along as his sidekick. And what he would tell me is, hey, I'm going to get you plugged in with one of the dorms here with the uh, uh, with these uh, with these churches that we're connected to. And he's, I mean, there would be anywhere between 200 kids at the camp and 1,500 kids at the camps that he would preach. And my dad would say, hey, come with me. You hang out, be with me for the week, but plug in with one of these churches and make some new friends. Can you imagine seven youth camps where I was coming into a situation where I didn't know anybody at the camp? I still look back on that, and I can't believe I had the courage to go with dad, but it was a perfect illustration that, man, the first day was always really hard, but once you got through the first day, the other five, four or five days of camp ended up being absolutely beautiful. But getting started in that new setting is something that we need to know. It's always difficult to get started, but once we get going, the Lord takes care of us in a very powerful way. If you're taking notes, our big million dollar question we're going to address today in Acts 18 is how should you get started in a new setting. Great lesson to take notes on. Let's follow Paul's example starting in Acts 18 verse 2. How should you get started in a new setting? Look at Acts 18:2. It says after this Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. Then he met a Jew named Aquila, 
a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered that all the Jews or ordered all the Jews to leave Rome Paul went to see them now stop right there for just a minute we have here in Corinth Priscilla and Aquila now you got to know about Corinth some scholars believe there could have been as many as 200,000 people uh, in this city during this state and time and it was a very metropolitan place in fact one scholar even said not just anybody could afford to travel to Corinth. I mean, it was a wealthy city. Um, it was very well to do. And not only that, um, it was a place where, again, people who had been displaced could go and kind of reinvent themselves and start over like Priscilla and Aquila. They had been displaced uh, because of their religious views, being Jews themselves. And they had left Rome, uh, and they had ended up in this place, Corinth. Well, when Paul gets there, Paul does what anyone should do in a new setting who's a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, how should you get started in a new setting? Number one, find some godly people. Find some godly people. What Paul does right off the bat is he doesn't just look for anyone as a friend. He looks for individuals he can connect with that have a specific connection to Yahweh Almighty God. In the same way that Paul starts off in our previous chapters in the synagogues ministering to the Jews, here in Corinth he goes and finds two people that he knows will be sympathetic to his way of life and to specifically his faith. He finds individuals that are like-minded. If you're taking notes, write this down. Christ-centered friendships are critical to finding stability and longevity in a new setting. Christ-centered friendships are critical to finding stability and longevity in a new setting. I had a boss back in the day named Brother Jerry Huggins. And I remember when I started working for him, Brother Jerry would tell a story about when he worked for Southwestern Bell, uh, the old uh, telephone company, what would kind of become AT&T. And I remember when he would tell the stories, he said, you know, I used to get to go on business trips uh, to New York City. Again, this is a guy from West Texas. He said, when we'd get out to uh, on this business trip, he said, sometimes you'd be in the city and you'd begin to feel lonely, just like we do here. You're around so many people all at once, and yet it can make you feel even more isolated, even though there's people all around you. I'll never forget, Brother Jerry, I asked him, I said, so what would you do when you felt lonely? He said, I would put on my sports polo. He said, I'd put on a shirt that had, because he was a Texas Tech Red Raider, he said, I'd put on a shirt that had a double T on it. And he said, I would go for a walk through Central Park, or I'd go for a run. He said, or I would even just walk the streets. And he said, it never failed. When I was wearing that polo, somebody would walk up that they themselves were a Texas Tech Red Raider. Or he said, sometimes... Back in those days, the Texas A&M Aggies were the big rival for Texas Tech. He said, either Red Raiders would stop me, wave at me, and say, hey, guns up, brother. Are you from Lubbock? Where, how, how'd you get out here? And all of a sudden, they would start a conversation. He said, or again, an A&M Aggie would show up and then start to heckle him, and then that would start a friendly conversation as well. Why would they do that? He said, because we found a bond through the shirt that I was wearing, and all of a sudden, it gave us something to talk about. When it comes to matters of faith, it's even deeper. We've got to have the courage to connect with others in a new setting, whether it be at work, whether it be in a new city, whether it be in a new living situation. We've got to find like-minded individuals 
so that we can begin to show them who we really are in Jesus Christ, so that we can find our place in this new system that God has developed for us. When Priscilla and Aquila show up, I want you to save your spot in Acts 18 and flip over just a few pages to Romans chapter 16. And I want to read you Romans 16 verse 3. This couple that Paul meets, Priscilla and Aquila, look at what happens in Romans 16 verse 3. This is Paul looking back on what would take place in Corinth. Here's what he writes in Romans. It says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. I read that passage, seeing what we see in Acts chapter 18, and you realize this couple that Paul connected with after having the experience he'd had in Athens that we studied about last week. Paul comes upon a couple that he says will risk their lives for him and they will end up being friends to the Gentile, church, the Gentile Christian churches all over the world. When you get moved into a new setting, the Priscilla's and Aquila's are out there. You just have to look for them. You just have to find them. Those Christ-centered friendships are so critical to us finding stability and longevity in those new settings. I'll never forget, there was a stretch in college for me when I had not been living for the Lord, but I finally came back to the Lord in a really powerful way. And I remember in talking with some of my mentors, they said, you need to make sure that you plug in with some godly friends. At that time, I was waiting tables at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster. And uh, I, again, loved my experience there, loved my coworkers, but it was pretty few and far between to find godly people at my place of business during those days. And so I remember I was so desperate for godly interaction. I remembered living in Oklahoma that my dad's college roommate was pastor of a church, First Baptist Church in Yukon, Oklahoma. I had had some church hurt that had kind of taken place in my life. And I remember at that time, it was very important to me to find someone that I truly trusted uh, spiritually uh, to lead me. And so um, it was about an hour and 15 minute drive from Stillwater to Yukon, Oklahoma. And I remember I made that drive twice a week for an entire semester because I trusted these people at UConn, specifically a man named John Carey, who was the pastor there at the time, and a man named Derek Dennis, who was the youth minister. I would drive there on Sundays. I would drive there on Wednesdays. And usually I would even drive in after my shifts on Friday at Red Lobster because I just wanted to spend time with Coach Dennis and his family. It was such a special and precious time. And even though it was an hour and 15 minutes each way in the car, that two and a half hour drive round trip was so worth it just to be around godly, like-minded people. Some of you needed to hear that story today because for you, you're very, very busy. You have so many heavy burdens on you from what you're doing here on the hill, what you're doing here in this city. And the truth is, sometimes you look at it and go, is it really worth it to make the trek out for that small group? Is it really worth it to make that trek in on Sunday mornings to gather with other believers? Is it really worth it to put forth that effort to be around godly people? Can I tell you the answer is yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. It's one of the ways that you get settled here. 
If you don't make godly friends, you will not stay in this city. It's so difficult. You have to have the proper foundation because when the storm hits, and it will hit, when the storm hits, only the firm foundation stands. That's the example that's actually given to us in Matthew chapter 7. Save your spot there in Acts 18, but flip over to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 24 through 27. Famous verses that we've read here many times, but it's a perfect picture of how friendship uh, gives you stability and longevity uh, when we uh, uh, when we go through difficult things here in the city and meet godly Christian friends. Look at what Jesus has to say about the wise and the foolish builder. Matthew seven, starting in twenty four. It says, therefore, this is Jesus speaking. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against and beat the house. And yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. One of the things I've always loved about that passage is the description of the wind and the waves and the storm are exactly the same. It's the same storm that hits the house with the foundation of rock that hits the foundation, that hits the house with the foundation of sand. The picture in that beautiful passage is that storms are going to hit us. And if our foundation is strong, we will be able to weather the storm. But if our foundation is soft, if our foundation is not on the rock, then we don't just fall, we fall with a great crash. For some of you, that describes your time in this city. Because you have not developed godly, Christ-centered relationships, it doesn't matter how successful you are in business, it doesn't matter how successful you are relationship-wise, it doesn't matter how big your networking book is. If you don't have those godly friendships, it's tough to stay grounded, and therefore, it's tough to have any real longevity here. I want to encourage you, find some godly friends. Find some like-minded people. Put in the time to join the small group, to hang out with godly people, to spend time doing these different ministry activities, to volunteer in what we're doing here in the church. Find times to be around godly people. Because when we do that, we develop a strong community foundation that allows us to be strong in our faith. It begs the question, have you placed a high enough priority on finding godly friends? Have you placed a high enough priority on finding godly friends? When you've got godly friends, it doesn't matter if you get hit with a storm of destruction or a storm of excitement. Godly friends will both weep with you and celebrate with you in the way that God intended. It's a powerful thing. I want to encourage you. Find those godly friends and place the highest priority on developing those relationships. Now flip back over to Acts 18, and let's look at verses 3 through 5. Here's what it says next. Again, uh, Claudius had ordered that all the Jews to leave Rome, so Paul went to see Priscilla and Aquila. Look at verse 3. It says, and because Paul was a tent maker, as they were, underline as they were, 
he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue while trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, stop right there for just a minute. We find out several cool things here. First of all, not only uh, do Paul uh, does Paul and uh, and Pris- do Paul and Priscilla and Aquila have in common their faith, but we also find out that they're all three tent makers. Now, this is all very interesting because we find out earlier in Scripture that that was one of the things that Paul did to make money in these different uh, towns that he would go, these cities he would go to share the gospel. Uh, a lot of times, uh, even when you read in Paul's letters, he talks about him not being dependent on anyone for his living. Uh, he had this trade where he was able uh, to make tents, and uh, not only did he preach, but he also, again, had this trade that he was involved in. Priscilla and Aquila did the same thing. But here's what we find that's interesting. At the beginning of this passage, he makes tents along with Priscilla and Aquila. He does that as his job. He stays and works in the city, and he's a tent maker, but he's also preaching every Sabbath and reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the Greeks. But when Paul, when Silas and Timothy show up to see Paul, it says at that point, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Very interesting about Paul's experience in this new city. Paul starts off as a tent maker preacher, even though he might be considered one of the greatest preachers in the history of the Christian faith. In the beginning, while Paul is still proving himself, while Paul is still finding his way in a new community, He starts off making tents and preaching part-time, even though later on he will be able to devote himself exclusively to preaching. If you're taking notes, how should you get started in a new setting? Number one, find some godly people. And number two, find constructive ways to serve. This could be summed up in this concept. The difference between Paul's potential And Paul's present. The idea here is that Paul, even though he is a fantastic preacher who has started churches all over the known world at this point, even Paul in a new setting, his potential was to be a full-time preacher, but his present was that he needed to make tents to survive and preach on the weekends. The picture there is when you come into a new setting, don't be the one that just steps in and goes, you know what? I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to plug into the community. I'm not going to be involved in anything until they acknowledge just how great I am, until they acknowledge just how much potential I have. If you're taking notes, write this down. A disciple takes into account their present circumstances and their personal potential when finding a place to serve others, but they have to do something. Let me say that again. A disciple takes into account their present circumstances and their personal potential when finding a place to serve others, but they have to do something. The picture with that statement is when you come into a new setting, don't be the one that sits back and wastes a whole bunch of time that you could be serving and doing awesome things for the kingdom just because you're waiting to be able to do something that's worth your time and talents. Paul makes tense for a time. One of the greatest preachers in the history of the world. One of the greatest church planters in the history of Christendom. Paul still spends some time making tents because it's better than just sitting around doing nothing. 
when we don't serve, it ends up creating this void, this emptiness. And I'm telling you from experience, it would be better to do something than to wait for the thing you feel like fits your potential. We've got to come to a point where we truly serve constructively. Right after I graduated from college, I'll never forget, again, another time of transition in my life. John Strapazon uh, had asked me if I would move to Lubbock, Texas, so he could teach me how to disciple. And I remember, again, I'd ask Strap if, uh, if there was any money attached to this. He goes, nope, doesn't pay anything. He goes, I just would teach you how to do this if you moved up here and uh, hung out with me for free. And uh, I was so crazy. I, I jumped in and I did it anyway and uh, I had a great experience. I was waiting tables with a degree and, uh, and serving with John Strapazon. I'll never forget my first actual job in the college ministry there at First Baptist Church in Lubbock. Shane Kammerer, uh, one of the interns on staff there, Shane asked me, he goes, uh, so you want to serve? He goes, uh, you got time to set up chairs? Again, job didn't pay anything, but they needed to set up 300 extra chairs because we were packing out the sanctuary uh, to the point that there needed to be 300 extra seats set out. I'll never forget, Shane said, show up early. He said, we'll set up the chairs. And uh, it was funny at that point, I took it so seriously. I was so excited to get to do it. Even though I'd been preaching for Fellowship of Christian Athletes at OSU, even though I'd been leading different discipleship groups, I'd taught different classes uh, before I'd moved uh, back to Texas, I was just so happy to do anything. I was filled with great joy to get to set up the chairs. They even referred to me as the chairman of Paradigm. Paradigm was the name of the college ministry, and they called me the chairman of Paradigm, not because I had any leadership, but because I set up the chairs. I was the man that set up the chairs. At the end of the day, I used to lead a Bible study for the group that we put together that would set up the chairs. We would pray over the seats as we set them out, and then we would go and worship together in the evenings. It was such a sweet and precious time, and in many ways, that stretch is very similar to what we do here at Waterfront today. I still assist in setting up the chairs. The staff will tell you, nobody loves to move chairs around here more than I do. We still assist in setting up the chairs and we still pray over them because the chairs represent someone who will hear the gospel. I want to encourage you. Some of you are missing out on some really, really cool ministry because you feel like it's beneath you. Jesus himself says, do you want to be great in the kingdom? You must first learn to be a servant to who? To all. A servant to everyone willing to do whatever it takes in order for the gospel to move forward. Paul basically says through his passage, Lord, you want me to make tents? I'll make tents. You want me to preach on the Sabbath? I'll preach on the Sabbath. You want me to devote myself to this fully? I will do it with just as much joy. We got to come to a point where we constructively serve and we have a fire within us to realize we feel empty when we don't commit ourselves completely to God. It begs the question, are you waiting to serve until you get a proper offer? Are you waiting to serve until you get a proper offer? If you are, you're going to miss out, especially when you start off in a new setting. It usually takes a while before people realize just how special you are. 
just the way that it goes. Nobody ever walks into a new setting and everybody knows their entire history. It takes time to get to know you. In fact, any organization that's worth its salt that you would like to serve, that you would like to serve with in a high capacity, you don't want somebody who just picks people up off the street and plugs them in. You want a group that gets to know you before they allow you to be in leadership. And it's the same way here. Jump in, serve, and allow the Lord to reveal to others just how special he made you to be. With that in mind, we got some opportunities around here to serve. The first comes up in a couple of weeks with an event called Trunk or Treat. We need some of you to sign up so that you can help and be a part of taking care of those trunks. We need some of you uh, to do setup and tear down. We need some of you to pass out candy. We need some of you to work some carnival games. We need some of you just to interact with the people in the community. No matter what, go online through our church-wide email this week, or you can pull out that little welcome card, write Trunk or Treat Volunteer on there, and drop it off into one of the boxes on your way out today, and we'll make sure that you get plugged into volunteers. Some of you need to mark your calendar for the first Friday, or for the uh, Friday before uh, Valentine's Day, so that you're part of a deal we do called Night to Shine, prom for kiddos with special needs here in the community. I mean, it is a glimpse of heaven. You should plug into that event. Whether you're in a leadership position or not, just being in the room for that thing will bless you no end. Some of you need to sign up and volunteer in our kids' ministry to serve with our kiddos. Some of you need to talk with TJ about serving in the student ministry. Some of you might need to talk to Denver about serving here in the band. Some of you might need to look into a wonderful ministry like Suited for Change. Uh, where we help uh, get suits uh, for women here in this community uh, who are uh, developing uh, connections in the workforce. Some of you might need to jump in and go on one of these mission trips, like the one that's going to Athens, Greece, uh, coming up in November, uh, to help women who have been uh, trafficked, sex trafficked, uh, but then discarded uh, once they reach a certain age or become pregnant. It's a powerful ministry. Garrett Tanner and his wife Jamie are leading that trip, and we're four spots short on that trip coming up. Maybe you need to plug in and be a part of one of these ways. Just constructively serve. Find a way to jump in and constructively serve, whether it fits your potential or whether it truly is a product of your present. Are you waiting to serve till you get a proper offer? Don't wait. Jump in and start serving. And then we've got a last, we've got three final verses to look at in Acts 18. It says again, he finds these godly friends, Priscilla and Aquila. He starts off, uh, he starts by uh, uh, making tents, but then he devotes himself fully uh, to serving by sharing the gospel with his uh, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength with all of his time. And then we get into verse 6 through 8. It says, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, underline became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It says, verse 7, And then Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door. Circle, highlight, and underline. And he went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. It says, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now stop right there for just a minute. What we have at the beginning of this is Paul's start. He makes godly friends in his new setting. He then finds ways to serve uh, both that fit his present and then later on his potential. But as he's sharing with the Jews that are not Priscilla and Aquila, as he's sharing in the synagogue, it says that just like 
like has happened in these other cities, all of a sudden the Jews in the synagogue become abusive to him, not just verbally, but physically trying to hurt Paul for the message that he's preaching about Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? Instead of forcing himself to stay, Paul then stands up and says, I shake out my clothes. The idea there is if there's even any dust in my clothing, I shake it off and leave here. There's nothing I'm taking with you or taking with me from you. He shakes out his clothes and says, look, you can have back whatever. If you don't want to hear this gospel, if you don't want to share this journey with me, then you know what? I'm going to go and share it with the Gentiles. And I love this. It says Paul doesn't just go anywhere. He goes next door. Underline next door. And next door, Titius Justice, Crispus the synagogue ruler, and also the entire household along with many of the Corinthians heard and were baptized. You see, Paul ran into opposition in the new town that he was in. But he doesn't allow one bad experience to run him out of town. Some of you needed to hear that today because DC has not been kind to you. Some of you need to hear that today because it's really hard to stay here. Some of you need to hear that because you have a really bad roommate situation. Some of you need to hear that because you got like you're a balloon that got popped at work. You ever had that happen before? Feel like everything's going well and then somebody comes along and just pops you. The situation that we're in in this passage, Paul comes in, he has a bad, abusive experience. But it doesn't mean that God couldn't do anything through him in Corinth. If you're taking notes, write this down. How should you get started in a new setting? Number one, find some godly people. Number two, find constructive ways to serve. And number three, don't let a few people sour the whole experience. Don't let a few people sour the whole experience. In this beautiful passage, Paul, if he quits on Corinth at the end of verse 6, then verse 7 and 8, where these believers come to form the church there in Corinth, then all of a sudden it never comes together. You want to hear something cool? If you study the history of the church at Corinth, one of the scholars wrote this. This was pretty cool. Paul ends up getting to spend 18 months in Corinth. According to the scholars, that was one of the longest times in the second missionary journey that he ever got to stay in one place. In fact, several of the letters that Paul writes to these churches, many scholars believe that many of those letters are written during that 18 months when Paul's in Corinth. What Paul's able to do in this passage is he doesn't give up on the work God's doing in the city just because of a few abusive people. If you're taking notes, write this down. This might be the most powerful thing you hear today. You ready? God's will was for Paul to go next door, not to leave town. Let me say that again. God's will was for Paul to go next door, not to leave town. For some of you, God is not done with you here in this city. He's not done with the work that you're doing in your job. But you might need to find a way to go next door, to find some new friends, to find some new opportunities, to find some new co-workers that are in your same job situation, but not necessarily the ones that are causing you trouble day to day. God's will was for Paul to go next door, not for him to leave town. 
Autumn reminded me of a story this week, and I thought it was so cool. She reminded me of the story of our pastor when we were in Grapevine. I'll never forget, there were some different points, especially early on. I was a young youth minister, and sometimes people would come up and say things to you, like, hey, several people are mad because this, 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 and this are happening. You ever had somebody do that to you, especially when you're young? They'll come up and say, hey, everybody's upset about this, 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 and this. I remember I went to my pastor in Grapevine and I said, I talked to one of our youth leaders and everybody's upset with me because of this, 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 and this. And he goes, who was it that said that to you again? I told him the name of the person who had said it. He comes back and he goes, you know who everybody means? He goes, them and one other person. He said, that's it. He goes, don't listen. He goes, take the piece of truth that they've shared with you, but it's not everybody. He said, everybody typically means them and one other person. There's so much truth to that. We do need to listen when people offer us criticism or insight, but truly to change the entire direction just because one person said so, don't let a few people sour the entire experience. He also said a lot of, he says, when people say a lot, a lot usually means two. I always thought that that was a very powerful thing. Don't let a few people sour the whole experience. To close today, I want to share a verse with you from Matthew chapter 13. Flip over to Matthew now chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 24 through 30. And this will be the last thing that we study today. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. If you're like me, and I'm going through a new setting, making godly friends, finding ways to serve, and I come across people who are angry, or I come across people that try to pop my balloon, pop my bubble, burst my bubble. When I come across those moments, or those bad conversations, again, with those youth workers that were trying to sway the whole thing uh, just uh, just because of something they wanted to do, Sometimes you can look at it and go, Lord, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Why are you allowing those people to cause trouble? Why are you allowing this difficulty to spring up around me? If that's you and you wonder why God doesn't just eliminate the wicked and allow the righteous to thrive, we get a really special verse here in Matthew 13, 24, in what Jesus calls the parable of the weeds. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus told his disciples another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When then did the weeds, where did then the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, the Lord replied, and the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together. Underline, let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. This is a powerful parable. Because Jesus says here that as God is up to something truly wonderful and great, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in this passage, 
to plant weeds that will choke out the greatness of God. So what happens? I love, by the way, the response of the farm hands. They say right here in verse 28, or verse 27, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sirs, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? I love it that the response of the servants is, Lord, did you know that you planted weed seeds here instead of wheat? That's what we do to God when we look at him and go, Lord, did you realize that you've allowed bad things to happen in this world? And what happens? The owner of the field, the Lord looks and says, look, an enemy did this. This sin was not a part of my plan and it cannot be a part of my character. An enemy did this. There is no way I desired this. But because the Lord wants the harvest to be plentiful, he says, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to let them for a time grow side by side in strength. But at the end of the day, we're going to round up the weeds and we're going to burn them. And then we're going to round up the wheat, what's useful, and we're going to put it in the barn where it belongs. When you get started in a new place, there's always going to be weeds. There's always going to be stuff trying to choke out the goodness of God. It doesn't matter if you're in a place that's ripe with Christians or if you're in a place that's ripe with wickedness. There will always be weeds and there will always be weeds. I always hate it when I got seniors or juniors in high school that come up and say, I want to be godly, and so I'm going to check into a Christian school. Can I tell you what I've learned over the years? Christian schools are great. Don't hear me wrong on that. But if you think just because you go to a Christian school, there's not going to be any temptation, man, you are sorely mistaken. You know what happens? There's good and bad at Christian schools, and there's good and bad at secular schools. You know what's going to happen? If you go out looking for the godly, you will find it. That was the first part of the message today. But if you go in looking for perfection, there is no perfect school. There is no perfect job. There is no perfect town. There is no perfect relationship. At the end of the day, if the Lord calls you somewhere, go and know that there are going to be weeds and there's going to be wheat. It's going to be both. You have to come to the point where you trust the Lord, where you follow him, and don't let a few sour the whole experience. It begs the final question, is it time you made a small but important correction? Is it time you made a small but important correction? Paul needed to go next door. He needed to allow the Lord to move him along so that the ministry could continue. Are there any of you here today watching this that need to move somewhere else, that need to go next door so you can be a part of whatever it is God has next for you?